It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. The mythology of the 1950s American suburb. Mom, dad, white picket fence, two-car garage, 2.5 kids, doesn't really align with the reality of who lives in suburbs today. Suburbs are bustling with multi-generational families, immigrants, and multiracial residents who defy the Stepford stereotype. It is true that after World War II, the federal government heavily invested in the creation of middle-class suburban havens for nuclear families, slashing funding for downtowns and forcing de facto segregation through redlining and community covenants. In the decades since, though, the suburbs have become more diverse than ever and less fashionable. With affordable housing currently in crisis, climate change ascendant, evictions on the rise, and a flood of wealthy people abandoning the suburbs for rapidly gentrifying cities, can this pocket of the American dream evolve? For solutions to the present-day problems of suburbs, Amanda Colson-Hurley, senior editor at City Lab and previous guest on the podcast, looks to the suburbs hidden throughout American history that did something a little different. Forgotten places where utopian planning, communal living, socially conscious design, and integrated housing flourished. Welcome back to the show, Amanda. Well, thanks so much for having me. Uh, So first of all, I was super shocked to learn that the suburbs are really old, actually. I thought it was a 20th century thing, but no. So tell me about the origin of suburbs. Yeah, I mean, archaeologists digging up Ur found that there was a kind of suburban zone stretching a few miles uh, outside the city. Ancient Rome had a pretty large uh, suburbia, actually suburbium, (laughs) it it was in Latin. Actually, in the Americas as well, uh, there's been new research showing um, and archaeological finds uh, showing suburbs uh, in a lot of pre-Columbian cities. You know, some urbanists, uh, urban scholars, have argued that the suburb is sort of really a universal global phenomenon, and that does seem to be the case, and that, you know, where you have a large and growing city, suburban expansion is is pretty much inevitable. 
Um, and maybe maybe you see that today in uh, you know the efforts of cities that are growing and growing fast, trying to impose growth boundaries. Uh, and it's 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 a struggle. I mean, it's it's difficult. London did that uh, by you know putting a green belt around the city, uh, but then development just kind of leapfrogged the green belt. Um, and actually, even Queen Elizabeth I tried to stop suburban growth during her reign, um, and that effort did not prove successful. So, yeah, pretty much as long, you know, for all of <laughs> for all of history, um, there has been suburban growth, and there's been efforts to constrain it often, and, and it's just proved very challenging. Right, kind of like the simultaneous embrace and backlash against suburbia. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see that in the States too, right? Because there is this cliche that I grew up with and lived of the suburbs being little boxes on the hillside, ticky tack, etc. Um, but as you explain, that's actually not the reality of suburbs. And that's just one more myth that you bust. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is, to a certain extent, it is the reality of suburbs. I mean, um, the kind of stereotype of the 1950s suburb with the ticky tacky houses and the uh, mom in the kitchen and wearing her apron, <laughs> you know, <laughs> running her newfangled appliances. Um, I think one reason that took hold is that uh, there was that era of really rapid suburbanization after World War II. Um, but I think that because that's become such a kind of cultural uh, a lodestone, <laughs> you know, for people. I think that it's obscured the fact that there were plenty of suburbs existing in the U.S. before that. And actually, even going back to the Revolutionary War, the suburb in, in the United States well predated the end of World War II and those kind of little boxes. And that was really one of the most interesting things about researching the book was just finding this uh, incredible diversity. And part of that is... Uh, I kind of very consciously use a pretty capacious definition of the word suburb. I think some of the places I talk about, people would say, yeah, but that's not a suburb. Uh, You know, a religious commune or people kind of building their own crude dwellings and, uh, you know, keeping a herd of goats on the outskirts of the city. That's not really a suburb. And kind of one of the things I argue is that because these places were close to cities and really enmeshed with the economies of cities, they were suburbs. I, I, I really choose to see them as suburbs. And I think that um, by holding to such a narrow definition of what a suburb is, I think that's actually one reason why that stereotype of suburbia has, has proved so kind of hard to dispel mm-hmm. or hard to broaden is because, uh, yeah, I don't know, just people kind of are resistant to, to broadening that definition or think, but that couldn't be a suburb. And kind of my argument is, but, but it could, and it is. <laughs> right, right. And you use those examples to shine a light on the problems that you see with suburbia. Mm-hmm. So could you outline those? What are the major issues facing suburbs today? Well, uh, suburbia often, or I should say, the sort of land use um, and kind of lifestyles that are associated with suburbia often come under fire from environmentalists for contributing to carbon emissions and accelerating climate change. I think that's a a totally valid uh, criticism. I mean, I think the suburbs really are implicated in, uh, in our greenhouse gas emissions, and we really have to act to change some of those patterns. Unfortunately, we have built suburbs uh, and are continue to build suburbs where 
people can't walk to the store to buy a pint of milk, where kids can't walk to school, where people can't get a train or a bus to get social services to a senior center or Mm -hmm. a community center. That has a social toll, but also a heavy environmental toll. Um, and we need to think about designing places better <laughs> so so that people can do more of those things without getting in the car and without driving. Um, and what I found, you know, researching the book is that there were more attempts to create suburbs of that nature. Now, some of them predated the car, but some of them didn't. <laughs> then, you know, there are more attempts to, to do that than people might think. Um, you know, it's not like this would be breaking entirely new ground by you know, building a walkable, bikeable, uh, transit-accessible suburban neighborhood, uh, that would be very exciting if someone did that, but that would actually not be as novel as perhaps you would suppose, uh, because there are past examples of communities like that. Well, okay, so that gets at one aspect of the problems with suburbia, which is the environmental toll. Right. But then there's also the, the cost of housing. So how do suburbs or radicalizing suburbs help with that? How is this going to help me afford my first home? (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, so traditionally, uh, a lot of the suburbs that people associate most strongly with suburbia are um, very kind of affluent, upper middle class, pastoral places. Um, I'm thinking of suburbs, actually older suburbs from, say, the late 19th century and early 20th century, probably seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but, you know, you might remember the street and the neighborhood. I think there's a scene, right, where he has to get home and he's, like, jumping over all these fences and, like, going through everybody's yard. But, you know, Ferris Bueller, the Buellers live in this uh, very lovely suburban house. I think John Hughes was from the suburbs of Chicago. Somewhere in Chicago. Yeah, and I think it was kind of an ode to well-heeled Chicago suburbia. But I I think that's what a lot of people think when they think of a very well-off suburb. You know, that's what comes to my mind. And uh, the reason that there are suburbs like that is because really they were developed as exclusive places. And there were various measures that developers took to ensure that people below a certain social threshold would not be able to live there. So uh, they made the lots quite large. So you would have to be somebody, you know, who was able to afford a a house on a, you know, a large lot. Sometimes they even said, you know, you can build a house on the lot, but uh, there's a minimum construction cost. So if you wanted to buy a piece of land in the suburb and then build a little cottage on it, a simple little cottage, uh, that was not allowed. So they had these kind of, uh, you know, deed restrictions and and covenants on the communities um, that limited what people could do and sort of prescribed a, a certain architectural style and a certain really a kind of income requirement on the basis of the people moving in. And famously, there were racial covenants, too. So often African-Americans were not able to purchase homes, sometimes Asian-Americans. And I think sometimes even Catholics <laughs> had trouble getting into these suburbs. Now, these very kind of elite enclaves were never the majority on uh, on the outskirts of, of cities. Uh, they're quite well known, a lot of them, because... Um, 
because they're quite attractive and they've been, I think, featured in a lot of books and TV shows and movies. But they were not the sort of dominant environment because they were elite. But I think you do see that kind of pattern of using kind of regulations and then later using zoning essentially to kind of exclude, quote unquote, undesirable uses and people from suburban communities. And that's one reason that suburban housing, uh, even outside of those elite places, it's still you know, can be pretty expensive. So let's dig into your counterpoints to those exclusionary suburbs, maybe starting with the most radical one of all, the anarchist enclave in Stelton, New Jersey, which survived two world wars and the Great Depression. There were pretty much no rules and and everything you were talking about, no zoning laws, lots of small units, and homeowners who were perfectly willing to sell to anybody, African-American, Asian-American, or otherwise, right? Yeah, I mean, the anarchist colony in uh, central New Jersey was sort of um, uh, a really, as you might expect, a very freewheeling kind of place. And it's it's so interesting and in how different it is from a kind of highly regulated suburban neighborhood. Um, it was initially built, you know, and founded before zoning law was passed in, in New Jersey. And um, you can really tell the difference. <laughs> um, yeah, so they, you know, they were this group of uh, not all anarchists, some were socialists, some were communists. Um, some, I think, were just kind of quirky th- free thinkers. But they all came out from New York to central New Jersey in 1915. They were part of this sort of anarchist education association that bought a tract of land. And uh, then they subdivided it and they each took an acre and they built their own houses. Mostly they were working class people. They were not wealthy people. Um, A lot of them worked in the garment district in New York. And so they built what they what they could with their the money and the skills that they had. So they often lived in kind of two or three room little cottages. And what's so funny about this to me is, um, uh, I mean, they were they were sometimes quite crude looking, but uh, they really were, it was like the original tiny house village, you know, mm-hmm. but they really, they were out there doing that in central New Jersey in 1915. <laughs> but it did work for them. I mean, they were out uh, in what was then uh, still somewhat rural type of place. There was a train station on the Pennsylvania Railroad just a few miles away. And so they could get back to their jobs in New York <laughs> on weekdays, So, which is what some of them did. And they commuted all that way, which which is kind of, in my mind, what what makes that a suburb. It's, it's a very suburban area now. Um, but you could kind of argue they were the first ones to suburbanize it, which is not something you would think anarchists <laughs> would, <do>. would be <laughs> doing. Or want to do. And I don't think it was, you know, intentional. Well, I mean, 1915 to after World War II is quite a long time. Yeah. And in the book, I really kind of focused on communities that had some longevity to them. I mean, there have been a lot of communes and intentional communities in American history, and a lot of them just kind of flame out after, you know, after like six months or a year. But I kind of gravitated toward these examples. I mean, because first of all, they were all in these suburban locations and kind of, you know, had these ties to back to the city that, you know, to my mind really makes them 
makes them suburbs, despite appearances <laughs> otherwise. And they also had this staying power to them. Uh, so that anarchist colony, you'd think, gosh, a bunch of anarchists, you know, with no, a lot of them quite unskilled, some of them not even fluent in English, you know, moving out there, not knowing what they were doing. What are the chances they would last even even like two years? I think in their case, actually, the fact that they were anarchists <laughs> was probably very helpful because um, people could kind of come and go and do as they please. And, you know, there weren't a lot of rules. I mean, the neighbors weren't going to be angry at you if your house didn't look a certain way, right? If it wasn't up to a certain standard. And then, you know, sometimes people, let's say, you know, your cousin said, oh, I, I want to get out of the city for the summer. Could I come stay with you? You could maybe build another shack behind your own on on your land and nobody would stop you. So, you know, uh, there were definitely people who kind of built their own kind of accessory dwelling units. Uh, and certainly nobody was going to be drummed out of the community. So that just kept them going a long time. It's interesting to contrast the success of Stelton, New Jersey, which had no rules, with some of the other successful long-lived communities that you talk about. Who made it because they had a lot of rules, right? I'm I'm thinking of the Harmonists of Economy, Pennsylvania, who came over as dissidents from Germany and built a couple settlements, including the one you visited just a dozen miles outside of Pittsburgh. So how did the beliefs and the rules and everything of the Harmonists shape the suburb of economy? Um, it's quite, it's a very interesting place. It's now run as a historic site, so you can go visit it. But um, they did have quite a lot of rules, chief among them was celibacy. So, so it's very interesting to see uh, this settlement outside of Pittsburgh where, unlike the kind of I don't know, the classic American suburb, which is designed so much for the nuclear family with young children in the home, right, uh, to see what was, uh, you know, not designed for the nuclear family at all because they had essentially, you know, <laughs> just like rejected the nuclear family. So, you know, people lived in houses in this community often with adults they were not related to. I think they were kind of assigned housemates. And it was kind of like group houses, which is just really, I don't know, kind of funny to think of. Mm -hmm. Also, they had no private property. So all of their, um, all of their possessions were shared. And uh, the kind of architecture of the town reflects that because there are certain shared facilities like a community kitchen and shared bread ovens. And um, there was a store where you would just go if you needed a new pair of shoes or uh, new clothes. They would just kind of mark it down. Um, and then, you know, you had your assigned job, whether it was in the factories or the farms or uh tending to your kind of group house, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't think people had a whole lot of choice, but there must have been a really strong group identity in, you know, living that way in a way that, I mean, I think there was a, a sense of shared purpose being engaged together in a sort of holy experiment. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that sense of shared identity is often religious or political in some of the examples you cite. But other times it can be, you know, like a shared aesthetic identity. Six Moon Hill, which was founded by a bunch of architects who wanted to do their own thing and right. design their own thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and that's a, a fascinating example of it was sort of a social mission fused with uh, architectural ambition, mm -hmm. right? So 
The Architects Collaborative was this group of architects who all worked together collaboratively, as their name <laughs> implies. Um, the most famous member of it was Walter Gropius, who was, uh, you know, uh, this incredibly famous modernist architect associated with the Bauhaus. Um, and, you know, they had this idea uh, at least a few of them were kind of living in close quarters in Cambridge, um, starting to have children, uh, you know, feeling cramped, <laughs> you know, in in apartments um, in a, a more urban environment and thinking, you know, what if we could go out to the suburbs? Um, but I think they were also sort of itching to try out some of their architectural ideas. Uh, and so they kind of found this way that they could do do both of those things. So they kind of built it as a suburban subdivision with a difference, you know. Um, so the houses are uh, very, you know, very modernist. And they did all sorts of really interesting experimental things with them. This suburban development was like a, a sandbox for them. The other thing that was really different was that the community had a lot of open space. And so they did not want each family to move in and just kind of live within its own property lines. They really saw it as a uh, more of a kind of collective life. Uh, and so they had this kind of large, uh, large common area, and there would be a lot of events and kids playing on the common area. But it was an interesting example of they didn't really challenge the model of the single family home suburban subdivision, but they tweaked it in these really interesting ways. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's interesting about Six Moon Hill is now those homes are very desirable and quite expensive. Um, the anarchist commune in Stelton doesn't really exist anymore. Neither does Harmony. A mm -hmm. lot of these places were quite successful, you know, by many measures of the term. But why weren't they really mimicked elsewhere? Why didn't they really catch on? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good question. Um, one reason that I find for that when I kind of look across them all and survey them is um, certainly from about the 1930s on, um, the federal government, you know, was drawing up policies for what type of homes it wanted builders to build, uh, what type of homes it would insure, um, and uh, also what type of people <laughs> it wanted to be living in those homes. So, you know, almost all of these places, they had problems getting financing or with zoning. I mean, those were kind of two huge obstacles. So, um, you know, with financing, I mean, I mentioned, I was talking about the Architects Collaborative at Six Moon Hill, and um, their houses weren't, didn't meet the federal guidelines for, you know, for insurance because they had flat roofs and, you know, because the, the government didn't like that. And, you know, they thought that that was too weird and that would hurt the resale value of the house or whatever. And Little so did they know. Well, I know, right? It's it's pretty funny in retrospect. But um, so, you know, they had to do creative stuff to, to get financing. Um, I also talk about a community, an otherwise very kind of uh, typical suburban community outside of Philadelphia that was built by uh, a home builder who was a civil rights activist, and he built it as an integrated suburb. Um, and that was his intention from the outset. And uh, he had so much trouble. I think he went to 20 different banks um, to try to get 
to, to raise the money to do this and to get um, insurance. So, uh, yeah, so there were definitely financial barriers to doing this. And then also with zoning, like, um, you know, Greenbelt, the only reason Greenbelt is the way it, it is is because it was the federal government. They owned this huge site of land uh, by the Agricultural Reserve in Beltsville, Maryland. They're the ultimate governmental authority, right? So they mm-hmm. were kind of able to do it the way they pleased. And then um, in Reston, Virginia as well, the developer, uh, Bob Simon, came down from New York and essentially had to convince Fairfax County officials to create a new, an entirely new category of zone really overhaul it in a very dramatic way, specifically for his own project, because otherwise there was no way to create it under the current laws. So, um, you know, unless you are like tenacious and have the time and resources to find a way around those barriers, you know, you're probably not going to. What do you think are the big lessons to draw from each of these places? Because it seems like now we're in a moment where the roles have reversed Cities are ascendant and suburbs are really out of fashion. In the 20th century, people fled cities for a variety of reasons, leaving them severely underfunded because of a lack of tax dollars. And now we're seeing a reversal of Mm. that. Wealthy gentrifiers who a few decades ago would have moved to the suburbs are now moving into the cities and forcing long-term residents out into the suburbs. So how can we look at the lessons of the past of these different communities and apply those today and prevent that sort of destructive yo-yoing from happening and make it like a constructive yo-yoing. Yeah, I mean, it would be great to be able to prevent that yo-yoing. <laughs> That's a big task. But um, yeah, I guess, you know, to, to review some of my kind of larger takeaways from the communities that I visited and explored. Um, You know, I think we already talked a little bit about zoning reform. I think it's something that communities can do to start to encourage what you might call like a gentle density, right? So it it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to remove certain zoning rules and then there'll be a 20-story apartment building, you know, built next to you. No, it just means that Uh, Maybe, you know, somebody is going to add a backyard cottage or, you know, over time, the one house might become like a a duplex or something. But that's a way that, um, you know, suburbs can kind of grow their populations without encouraging sprawl. Um, But that's also really good because if there's enough people in a community, if that density is high enough, then you have enough of a critical mass to support things like neighborhood stores bus lines or more frequent bus lines. I mean, another lesson I drew in in thinking about Greenbelt again is that um, the amazing achievement of Greenbelt, I think, uh, and it was very controversial at the time, but, uh, you know, this was an example of the federal government saying that suburbia uh, was a place where renters, people of modest income, could live. Uh, the elevation of homeownership above everything else has been, I think, negative in that um, renters are kind of second-class citizens. And so we really need to make a place for renting in the suburbs. You know, another thing, a lot of suburbs block affordable housing whenever there's an attempt to move affordable housing into their neighborhood. And I mean, in terms of other lessons, one thing I love about Six Moon Hill and and, uh, those kind of architectural experiments is just that sense of like 
you know, yeah, we're going to build these single family homes, but they won't be like any single family home you've ever been in before. Increasingly, the average suburban family might be a three generation family, uh, you know, with roots in Guatemala or in India or Vietnam is that type of home designed for mom, dad, and 2.3 children, you know, back however long ago, is that really meeting their needs? And I love the idea of um, creatively tweaking that formula to come up with something new that might suit the kind of 21st century families better and the range of 21st century families better. And I guess finally, another lesson is, you know, you look at the harmonists in their uh, group houses out in Pennsylvania, and, you know, we're kind of getting back to that model a little bit more demographically in terms of, you know, it used to be that nuclear families with young children in the home were like a huge share of the American population, like 40%. And now it's something like 20%. So we have so many single people, so many uh, uh, widows and widowers or, uh, uh, you know, couples uh, living together without children, so many different types of households now, and so many houses not designed for smaller households, especially, you know, maybe design around them and kind of accept that the total dominance of the nuclear family is probably over now. You can still visit some of the suburbs that Amanda Colson Hurley writes about in radical suburbs, like Economy, Pennsylvania, or Six Moon Hill. Greenbelt and Reston are still alive and well just outside of downtown D.C. Stelton, New Jersey, is now Piscataway and not really anarchist at all, but it does have a really high percentage of non-white residents, a legacy of the anti-racist pioneers who founded it. We've got links in the show notes to the book and other housing-related essays of interest, so do check it out. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.